Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And if you would like to be on the show, uh, if you would like to uh, give me a call on the listener hotline, I would like for you to do that so then I could put you on the program. The number is 303 832-0217. By the way, before I mention who was on the show today, I'm scheduled to speak with Mike Kucharski. And Mike is the co-owner and vice president of JKC Trucking out of Chicago. And we're going to be talking about all things uh, going on in the trucking industry. So if you have a specific question you want me to ask Mike, uh, you want to let me know, you can just uh, find one of the links uh, to uh, any of my contact links there on the description of this show, or call the number 832-303-832-0217. Uh, leave me a question there, and I'll ask Mike about it, uh, all about the trucking industry. And speaking of driving, how long do you think we're going to be driving ourselves in our own cars? In other words, when will autonomous cars take over our driving because they are better at it than we are. What would you say if it was less than 30 years? Well, in just a minute, I'm going to be speaking to Dr. James Jeffs. Uh, Dr. Jeffs is a technology analyst at ID Tech X, and he has a prediction about how long we're going to be driving our own cars. And I'll tell you this, he doesn't think we're going to be doing it for very much longer. Um, So that's going to be an interesting conversation. I will have that here in just a minute. But first, does it seem like when you uh, get off the plane at your airport, you get get off the plane, you're at the gate area, it it takes you a long time to walk down the concourse to outside security, get back into the terminal, and and go find your bags at the carousel? It, It seems like it's a really long way to go to go get your bags after getting off the plane. Well, there's a person behind a TikTok account called Design Secrets. And this person claims that airports have actually done this on purpose. He says airport operators have learned that a few design changes inside the airport can ease some passenger frustrations, explaining that airlines at the Houston airport were receiving all kinds of complaints about how long it took to get their bags. Even after getting the wait down to just eight minutes, they hired more staff to assist in getting the bags from the plane to the uh, to the uh, carousel a lot faster, but the complaints continued. So the executives used a trick, they said, to make baggage wait times shorter. And they did this not by improving the efficiency. They did it by moving the baggage claim to the far side of the airport. So by the time you arrive there, your bags are already there or really close to already being there. Now, this guy claims that complaints actually dropped down to zero uh, at that Houston airport. Now, the trick is that unoccupied time, when you're not doing anything, when you're sitting around waiting, it feels a lot longer than when you're doing something, even if it's just walking in an airport. So waiting around doing nothing, especially in an era that values immediate gratification and you're and you're flipping. You go. I can't. I can't just sit here and, and just stare at a baggage carousel that's not moving, waiting for my bags. I have to get onto my TikTok account or my Facebook account or, or Instagram and start looking at something because uh, you can't. What you can't have any wasted time, can you? So waiting around with nothing to do feels like it's a long time. You're you're do you're not doing anything, so it seems longer than it really is. But walking from the gate to the baggage claim, it feels like it's a shorter amount of time because you have to walk to that destination and you're doing something. So if the bags are there or at least real close to being there, you don't feel like it's such a uh, annoyance that your bags actually took 15 or 20 minutes to get to the carousel. And uh, it, it just could be because it took you about... 12 to 15 minutes to get there. I mean, it's especially true because uh, waiting time feels so much slower than when you're doing something, right? It feels like when you're doing something or, or, you're, or you're late for some uh, appointment, it feels like speed uh, time speeds up really fast when you're rushing to get somewhere. Uh, I guess airports say complaints uh, went down to nearly zero after they did this. Now, I still 
in a lot of cases, have to wait for bags to show up at the carousel. So, but I think that's more of a, a problem with not only the airlines, but the airports and uh, not at least recently, not being able to hire enough staff to get all that work done. But you also have to walk a long way to get to the baggage carousel from the plane. <laughs> but what about complaints for a long walk? Maybe those started going through the roof. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, it, you, you hear about design changes in buildings just to make you feel certain ways and colors and buildings. Well, there's, there's one for an airport. Well, the other day I saw an email that uh, came through my um, inbox that said, Driving will be outlawed by 2050 says ID Tech X. Well, that, that was a headline designed to perfectly pique my interest uh, why they think that. So imagine this. Imagine a world where autonomous cars will match or exceed human safety by 2024. That, that's just really two and a half years from now. And the technology will grow so quickly that just 25 years later, human driving will be outlawed. That is the prediction from Dr. James Jeffs, technology analyst at ID Tech X. He bases this prediction from two research studies, one called Autonomous Cars, Robotaxis, and Sensors 2022 to 2024, as well as in a new article called Why Driving Will Be Outlawed by 2050. Joining me now from England to talk about this prediction is Dr. James Jeffs. Dr. Jeffs, thanks for being here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, before we get into this autonomous vehicle prediction, let's learn more about you. What is your doctorate in and why are you interested in autonomous technology? So I did my doctorate in um, the electric, uh, sorry, the thermal management of electric vehicles in low temperature climates. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, I did that, started that in 2015 and uh, spent four years doing that and then a couple more years uh, working on an electric motorcycle project. So I've, I've been involved in future mobility for a little while and um we're, we're really sort of halfway through the race for electric i think it's um starting to see cost parity and i think the the next big question is autonomy so we're starting to see some really sophisticated on, autonomous cars on the road already and um yeah the future looks really exciting there's a, a lot of progress and uh, the the rate of improvement is really impressive that we're seeing from the leaders in the field it's interesting that you did your doctorate in low temperature uh, climates and how it affects battery technology, because I own a Chevy Volt, uh, so it is always running on the battery, but it has a generator in the front to generate electricity off of gasoline, so you can just keep going, so there's no range anxiety. But I can definitely tell a difference in how much the battery can hold and its uh, availability for uh, usefulness, really, uh, at really extremely low temperatures and extremely high temperatures. So what have you learned? I, I know we're going off topic a little bit, but it's interesting that the uh, battery technology does really change uh, with, uh, with temperature. Yeah, I'm certainly happy to discuss. Um, yeah, so you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, there's two major aspects happening at low temperatures. Firstly, you're losing up to about 40% of the battery's capacity. Uh, so what happens at low temperatures is the lithium that moves charges across the cell and, and gives you power um, basically gets stuck in one side of the battery. So it doesn't have enough energy to leave its, uh, where it's stored. And um, some of the lithium gets left behind. It, it's unused. And it, it reduces the physical capacity of the battery that you have available. And then the second aspect is um, you want to be warm. And if you're not running a gas engine, uh, you've got not much waste heat coming from the battery and coming from the motors. So you need to spend battery energy to power some heaters. And uh, that gives you sort of a, a double whammy when it comes to range reduction. So, yeah, in the past, sort of uh, the first generation electric vehicles that we saw in 2010, 2011, you could expect to see as much as a 60% reduction in uh, range from those two effects. But over the last decade, um, heat pumps became uh, more common and they were much better at extracting heat from the ambient, even when you do have very low temperature outside. And they could recoup heat from the battery and the motor, what little heat was available. So over the past decade, it's become a lot better uh, for electric vehicles in low temperature climates. And hopefully I worked towards that a little bit with my research previously. Yeah, it's interesting that the battery power is 
at least for the plug-in electric cars, such a hindrance for a lot of people buying them because I, I just had a friend call me recently. She just bought a new EV and said that she was concerned because she was driving up to northern Colorado. It was going to take about 100 miles up, 100 miles back, something like that. So about 200 miles. And I think she, her car had about that range, but was worried that she couldn't run the batter, run the uh, air conditioner or run the uh, radio and had to heat things off in the car. And I think that's a problem if you're worried about running things in the car just to run your car down the road, that's a problem for people buying them in the future. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a big thing when people go to buy a car that they, they think of these journeys that they want to do these, um, you know, I need to visit my grand who lives 150 miles away. I need to get there and back in a day. Well, that's, that's the limit of what current battery tech can do. And I can understand for a lot of people, it means that you just can't, Either you can't afford one of the electric vehicles that does have that range, um, or you, you think you'll you'll be stuck with a um, a car that won't have sufficient range, and you'll have to get gas or um, diesel, uh, um, unless you can afford a second car, perhaps, and you can uh, do a lot of your smaller journeys on an electric car. But gas and diesel are going away. Now, hydrogen, I, I've talked to, recently to some folks that are in the hydrogen space, and hydrogen seems like that could be a leading technology because you could you know, presumably hold enough fuel to go three or 400 miles. It still produces electricity, and your waste is only water vapor, basically. It's just a fi- matter of finding hydrogen, creating hydrogen, green hydrogen not the blue hydrogen maybe or or either side but it's just getting fueling stations around everybody has a plug-in usually at their house so they can charge their uh, plug-in car at their house not everybody has a hydrogen fueling station available yeah the the high the hydrogen um situation the technology on the cars is great and yeah you're right you put in hydrogen all you get out is water the difficulty is is definitely making the hydrogen um usually you're going to spend about twice as much energy making hydrogen as you would to just power a battery car. So, you know, instead of doubling your energy requirement to make the hydrogen to power the car, why not just put that energy straight into the car and save yourself a bit of energy that way? And then you've got problems like hydrogen fueling stations, which cost um, in sort of into the millions of dollars to build rather than, like you say, we've already got um, electricity at our houses and even putting out rapid charges, we're talking in the tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars rather than millions so it's, it's a difficult situation plus you've got the, the only, one of the most economical ways to make hydrogen is by stripping the hydrogen molecules off of carbon in the form of methane um, so at a refinery you, you get your methane you apply a chemical process and you take away the hydrogen um, but then you're just left with carbon dioxide which you've got to capture and do something with otherwise uh producing hydrogen can be as polluting as running um, just a petrol car or a gas car if you do it poorly. Yeah, all of those will be issues in the future. I'm talking to Dr. James Jeffs, technology analyst at ID Tech X, about autonomous vehicles and the possibility of humans not driving themselves anymore. Let's get back into that. And your study shows that by the 2040s, so really about 20 years from now, autonomous vehicles will be capable of fulfilling the world's mobility needs without a single collision. Now, when you say the world, do you mean the largest cities in the world? There has to be real differences in creating autonomous technology in the UK, in the EU, uh, here in the United States, and, and, and really the rest of the world, especially in less developed nations. Uh, yes, there's certainly uh, different challenges everywhere. And uh, I mean, people have seen the mayhem of streets in India, for example, where traffic rules don't seem to exist. And there's certainly really challenging um, environments for these cars to be in. I have given myself a 20 to 30 year window to be proved wrong or right. Um, but at the minute, it's based on testing that's happening mostly in California, mostly in, in cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco. And um, some of those cities, San Francisco can have some really challenging traffic environments. It can have narrow streets. It can have cyclists who don't obey any rules. Um, and we're still seeing the same progression. The, the progression of the top players um, sort of who've been recording their autonomous testing has been really consistent over the past uh, five years. They've been consistently doubling their safety, essentially, uh, since 2015. 
And now that they're, they're at a point where a few more doublings of safety and they'll be on par with human drivers. And the assumption is that that doubling of safety will, will continue for the next 20 years and um, there'll be more discoveries, uh, better sensors, better software, and they'll be able to keep improving. Uh, but there's other threats. There's always going to be unseen circumstances, things that the, the vehicles have never come across that they'll have to deal with. Um, there's also going to be difficulties with cybersecurity and malicious attacks, things that um, maybe the, uh, or the robo-taxi companies simply just can't plan for. Uh, so there's going to be lots of challenges over the next 30 years. But certainly it's uh, zero collisions and zero fatalities is something the automotive uh, manufacturers already have on their, their site set on. So GM, for example, um, they have their target of uh, zero collisions, zero emissions and zero traffic. And I think their target for that is 2050. So that's the kind of timescale that OEMs are looking at for achieving these, these massive results. So do you think the push towards autonomy and full autonomy is more about safety or mobility or, or both? Uh, both are definitely drivers. Uh, we've seen with the rise of Uber the cheap mobility and, and the need to, um, or the, the lack of need to buy a vehicle uh, has really driven their success. And in, in cities like San Francisco, Uber now counts for about 10% of um, all the miles driven. Um, it's had that much penetration. Uh, so yes, mobility is going to be a big part of it. Cheap access to mobility. You don't need to spend all that upfront money on a car. You just use it, uh, use mobility as and when you need it. Also access to mobility for people who can't drive, um, the disabled, the elderly, um, anybody in those more vulnerable categories, uh, being able to provide them with easy mobility is important, especially the ones that live in the countryside. This is uh, something that's a bit forgotten by today's mobility solutions, is if, if you're, you have impaired mobility and you live out in the countryside, there are some only very limited um, solutions for you. But a rover taxi doesn't really care if you live in the countryside or, or live in the city, it can still serve your needs. And then there's the safety aspect. So my prediction is that we'll see autonomous vehicles reaching human levels of safety in the next uh, three to four years uh, by 2024. Um, and then, you know, we've got a long time until the 2040s. In that time, I, I think they'll definitely be safer than human drivers. And at some point, we're going to have to ask ourselves, because we cause millions of deaths per year globally. Um, you know, it's, it's humans at fault 95% of the time. The other 5% can be attributed to uh, either poor servicing or something's gone wrong with the vehicle to cause a crash. But most of the time it's us causing the crashes. And if another system can do it safer than us, can, can we really be allowed to carry on? I have some interesting uh, scenarios to discuss with you in just a few minutes all about that. But we were just talking about some of the rural areas who might have trouble being serviced by autonomous vehicles or at least rideshare. What about other areas of the, of the world that aren't quite as developed as well? We were talking about India earlier. There's many parts of, of Africa and uh, Asia and, and other parts of the world, South America, that are not really on, maybe on, on track to see this kind of autonomous technology. Is this, is this going to be a city versus rural eventuality that you're only going to have these autonomous vehicles in cities and not out there in the country helping those people out? I think it'll definitely start in the cities because that's where it is now. Um, and that's where all the trials are happening. And the, the most likely thing is that the trials that are currently happening will be allowed to use more and more vehicles. Then trials will become services and services will expand city by city. Um, in the, in the distant future and those, uh, very rural parts of the country or all countries that are just very rural. It's very hard to, to tell what's going to happen. I wouldn't like to make predictions um, about how autonomy is going to penetrate those areas. Because it really seems, as you were talking about in your prediction, that autonomy might accelerate the end of humans driving only in large cities like Paris just 
reduced and restricted thousands of parking spaces. They've lowered the speed limit, all in an effort to further limit how many vehicles come into the downtown core. London is famous for having the vehicle fee where you go into the city, the core of the city, and you're charged more for it. So is it a situation where you think in the future we will have just the major downtown urban cores of of most major cities around the world really cut off to human traffic, only having autonomous maybe shuttle buses or smaller vehicles driving around, and that's all you're going to see, and then you have to drive in or uh, to a, a, a let's say a parking lot that's outside of that city core, and that's if you, if you needed to drive or have trains or buses that would take you into the downtown core. Uh, so yeah, see, I think like you said with Paris, and um, like we've seen in in Barcelona, cities are already becoming uh, hostile to vehicles. Is probably the best way to put it. Um, and I think that the cities will become more pedestrianized. There'll be bigger zones where vehicles either aren't allowed completely um, or where their activity will be restricted either through fine, uh, not fines, but uh, the sort of emission zone charges that we have in the UK uh, where only low emission vehicles are allowed in. Um, You know, soon I think we'll see cities completely banning ICE vehicles in certain places. You'll have to have a electric vehicle or you'll have to turn up in a plug-in hybrid vehicle and operate it in electric only. Uh, So it will definitely become more and more hostile to operate a um, conventional vehicle in cities. Because I think the I think the charge in London was really well brought on initially to lower uh, emissions in London and try to clean up the air less about mobility and more about clean air, right? Oh yeah, definitely. It was, it was about cleaning up the air in London. It was uh, getting quite bad, and there's there's a lot of cities around the world where the air quality is really bad, and it's about getting those um, high emitting, high particulate vehicles out of the city. But what I think is that's a sort of a precedent for safety, right? So we're we're interested in cleaning up the air to make the air safer to breathe for people. And I think when autonomous vehicles become significantly safer than human drivers, we'll see the same push to remove human drivers because of because they cause more collisions with pedestrians and they're in they're just less safe to have than uh, autonomous vehicles. So I, I think the the precedent has been set and in in. 10, 20 years, we'll start seeing that transition of um, we'll, we'll be sorted with electric vehicles in city and pollution, and we'll be starting to think much more about pedestrian safety within cities. I'm speaking with Dr. James Jeffs, technology analyst at ID Tech X, about autonomous vehicles and the uh, future of people driving cars. Will we get to the point, you think, with autonomous vehicles where we will be so connected that we could eliminate traffic lights because the cars are connected. They know when they're going to cross. There's no need to stop at a traffic light. One could cross this way. We could cross that way right after them because it's going to be safe because the cars are talking to each other. Or we could try travel maybe twice as fast on, on the highways because you could still travel double the speed right now, you know, feet maybe from each other, as long as a computer is monitoring every other car around them and you take the human element out of the uh, out of the picture. There are definitely those really exciting features, um, features that are being tested currently. There's, place, there's test sites in the UK where they're test uh, in the UK and in the US where they're testing these 5G features and, and what cars can what information cars can share with each other. Um, in fact, there's already some manufacturers, I think uh, BMW, Volvo and Ford, who have a selection of connected car features, which uh, give you things like um, things like the BMW driver will be driving around a city and the car will be monitoring where empty parking spaces are and it can pass that information on to other BMW drivers. So we've already seen some really clever connected technologies and in the future yeah i i think if um if all the cars know where all the other cars are you're right there's there's no no need for traffic lights the problem is that it's, it's not knowing where all the other cars are it's it's knowing where everyone is so you need to have connected uh bicyclists and connected pedestrians and it's doable because generally everybody's carrying a mobile phone but it's not 
ever going to be foolproof because if I forgot to take my mobile phone out with me, then none of these vehicles can see where I am from a connected perspective that would be um, stuck with their sensors. It's also something that is difficult, well, especially the motorway applications. Like you said, we can do platooning and uh, we can double the speed on motorways, make motorways a lot faster. But to do all of these things, you need to remove the human driver from the loop because if you've removed all the traffic lights, then a, a human driver doesn't know if it's safe to go or not. It, it either has to be reliant on its car or or that has to be removed from the loop, and the, the same with um, with motorways. If you if you have an old car driven by a human and a, a a fleet of autonomous cars doesn't know that it's half a mile down the road and it tries to come past at 120 miles an hour, that that could cause problems. So all these um, really advanced features are things that I think human drivers could potentially scupper by insisting that they need to be on the roads as well. Personally, it seems like infrastructure will be a major influencer in your in your timeline and maybe resistor to growth of autonomous vehicles and how many we would see on the roadways because a, a, a autonomous vehicle needs good mapping i mean really excellent mapping they need good roads so they can uh, know where they're going they need connectivity 5g internet definitely they need the fastest uh, and low latency internet connection that they can get and without any of that stuff autonomy couldn't really succeed, right? Uh, that's right. They, they do need a lot of um, support from the infrastructure, a lot of things being put in place, more than just the sensors on the vehicle. Um, so one of the things you mentioned was the, the mapping aspect. So autonomous cars use their sensors to create a, a very detailed map of the environment, and they can compare that to a reference map, and then they know exactly where they are. They know um, how far they are from the borders of the lane. They know um, what, what's coming up in terms of the road ahead. Um, currently, about 1% of roads in the UK, in the US are HD mapped, so there's still a long way to go in HD mapping. Uh, there is still a long way to go in 5G, uh, typically for the um, connected uh, mobile communication. It takes about 10 years for the, um, the, the new technology to become ubiquitous. So we're at the end of 4G now. It's very difficult to find a city that doesn't have good 4G communication. And uh, we're at the start of 5G, so it's going to take until the end of uh, this decade to have really good 5G communication everywhere. And then we'll be thinking about 6G and uh, we'll be thinking about the benefits that that might be able to bring and the challenges that come with that. Uh, so all of these things have a long way to go. And I think... Uh, we're, we're sort of at the point where we're seeing autonomous trials getting bigger and bigger, and uh, we're not too far away from seeing trials become services in cities. It's certainly going to take until the end of this decade for those services and trials to uh, roll out widespread across cities in, in the US and in, in Europe and China. Um, and then, yeah, we if we can continue to uh, grow the safety at that, that key factor of um, just over two, uh, and everything else comes into place. We get the mapping sorted, we get communication sorted. Um, hopefully by the, the mid-2040s, we can start to see some really real progress and uh, real strides towards zero collisions. Have you seen the fully autonomous shuttles we have here in Colorado? It's made by a company called Easy Mile. You were talking about you know these test areas. Well, they're now testing, if you will, uh, the Colorado School of Mines with uh, the state of Colorado and Easy Mile, these shuttles that look like toasters. Uh, I went out there a couple weeks ago, and they have now put them out there on the roads in Golden, Colorado, uh, and going around the campus, and they do it fully autonomously at about 12 miles an hour, so they're not moving very fast. They have only six seats. Uh, there is room for some people to stand up, and there is a safety ambassador standing on board just in case something would go wrong. But it seems like that is like the first toe in the water, if you will, of these tests of autonomous technology in real life conditions. So those shuttles are, are an interesting part of the chain. They're going to be, uh, from my understanding, they're going to be used for last mile kind of activities. So say you live in the, the suburbs of uh, Denver and it's a, a 10, 15 mile commute to get you to the town center, the, the city center. Uh, you do that commute via a robo taxi, one of the Waymo's or Cruises or 
one of those and then if you're left sort of a mile or two from your end destination then those robo those robo shuttles would be the answer and i think the the idea of those long term is that they'll be much closer to pedestrians so they can do it because they're narrower shorter um a bit smaller than um typical buses and uh, their low speed means that they'll be able to operate on uh, pavements and uh, they're also usually they can operate in reverse as well. So it doesn't matter which direction they're going in, which means you don't need to worry too much about maneuverability or them getting stuck in tight alleys or something like that, because if they've driven in there, they can reverse out just as easily. I'm talking to jo- Dr. James Jeffs, technology analyst at ID Tech X, about the autonomous vehicles, the technology, the possibility of humans not ever driving their vehicles again. Uh, you know, and, and, and as I'm thinking, I some uh, I'm going off tra- track again here. But as I was thinking about humans never driving again, I, I always had the fantasy of having the money to buy a 1961 Corvette. Uh, with that, you know, the two-seater with the convertible top, red with the white on the sides. You know, it, it it's fun to drive that car and other cars. It's actually, I enjoy driving, it Is it, I guess, autonomous technology when it finally takes over in 2050. The fun of driving is gone, right? Uh, it's, it's something I hear a lot, and uh, I like driving myself, uh, surprisingly. I'm not a fan of um, losing the reins to autonomous vehicles. I, I really hope that driving does remain part of our culture. Um, from my research, it, it seems about 20% of the population buy cars because they want that car. So they're spending essentially unnecessary money. They're, they're buying um, a high-end luxury vehicle where a much cheaper vehicle would have served their needs just as well. Um, that's the, the sort of information I have and, and how I've interpreted it is that about 20% of us buy cars because we want the car. Um, so uh, yeah, I hope for those people that it never goes away, but for a lot of us, it's, uh, it's also about just having cheap access to mobility. And I think when I said that, uh, driving will be outlawed, I think it certainly will in some places, definitely within city centers, there'll be this push for pedestrianization, but I really hope it doesn't get outlawed everywhere and that there are parts of the country where we have designated roads that you're made aware of that it's, uh, it's either it's open to both autonomous and privately driven cars. Um, and I think uh, certainly the sport of driving will remain. So we'll still see NASCAR, we'll still see Formula One, we'll still see IndyCar. And um, hopefully we'll still see uh, track days and the ability for people to, to take their cars to safe areas to, to use them as they please. One of the largest costs of owning a vehicle right now is insurance. And it determines, it helps determine when somebody is at fault at a crash, who pays for it, and uh, who will take care of people who are injured and the repairing of the damage that's caused in a, in a vehicle collision. Well, what about when you have an autonomous vehicle and there might be some kind of a issue with the computer or you have a... I, I don't know any anything that happens with autonomous. You have two autonomous vehicles, and they get into a collision, whether it's minor or major, for whatever reason. Who, how do you deal with the insurance in that uh, in that scenario? Is it drivers that have to have insurance? Is it the maker of the vehicle? Is it the software company? Is it the connectivity company that connects all the vehicles together? How do you deal with the insurance question when you have fully autonomous vehicles working together? So uh, there's two answers to this. Firstly, that um, you know, well, two parts of this, not two answers. First part is that uh, robo taxis and uh, the likes of Cruise, Waymo, uh, Pony, Baidu, uh, they're likely to be fleet owned. Um, so you'll use it as a service. You'll never own the vehicle. If it gets into a crash, it's not your problem. It's, it's be exactly the same as riding in a taxi. Um, except the, the taxi driver doesn't have to pay for it. It's the, the fleet owner that's having to, to deal with that. For the private case, uh, uh, where we're at now, we're at level two, most of the world. Um, some, of the, some of Europe and Japan is about to go into level three. And uh, level two means that you're always in control of the car. Um, you should always be paying attention to the road. And it, it basically means that if there's a crash, you, 
the human was still in control. At level three, under certain circumstances, for example, in traffic on a motorway, the car can operate completely autonomously. Uh, the human no longer needs to pay attention to the road. Um, at that point, I think it becomes a manufacturer issue. So I think if your system fails while the car has, decide, has um, said it's working completely autonomously, the autonomous system then has a crash or, or even something silly like incurs a, a traffic fine. Uh, it, it runs a red light or it runs a stop sign or it's caught speeding, something like that. Um, I think that needs to be put down to uh, a manufacturer problem. The same as if the manufacturer did a poor job of designing the wheel hub and a wheel fell off and caused your accident. We're talking about that top 5% of accidents that aren't caused by humans. It, it's, it's certainly a very difficult legal thing to deal with. And it's one of the reasons that it's taking a little while to get level three cars um, on the road and get all the legislation in place and decide exactly how they should operate and how responsibility should transition from humans to um, some third party. Because we've heard a lot about Teslas and how some drivers and owners of the Teslas are using that uh, auto technology, their autopilot technology, just to drive down the interstates. And they're not supposed to, they're supposed to be paying attention, but they're falling asleep. And sometimes they're actually getting into crashes because of it. Do you think maybe in your scenario, uh, somebody gets into a crash there uh, with the autonomous technology in their Tesla? And then maybe as compensation, Elon Musk has to take them up to space for free? <laughs> I think. Um... <laughs> It, it depends how it's being sold. So Tesla do make a point of putting level two in their um, documentation. And uh, I, I think it, with the latest round of um, full self-driving updates, there was a notification that this isn't a full self-driving car. It's not autonomous. You do need to pay attention to the road at all times. So I think from a liability perspective, Tesla will have covered themselves. But uh, you know, Tesla's, uh, there's a few Tesla crashes that the NHTSA um, have decided to investigate because they want to understand how um, the system is either being abused or, or how people can fall into that um, false sense of security. Um, so I think it, it's not a problem for Tesla at the minute, but when legislation in the US changes and level three and level four technologies are allowed, where the driver is legitimately allowed to take their focus off the road, that's when manufacturers will have to start being worried if their cars are, are crashing well owners are not paying attention or have fallen asleep but it's also very important that with these new levels and it is something that's happened in europe that the and uh, will be happening in china that there's a lot of uh, detail on how drivers should be monitored while the vehicle is um, operating autonomously so there needs to be cameras or radars or something inside the vehicle to monitor the state of the driver and if the vehicle feels like the driver might be um, falling asleep or lapsing, their attention is lapsing too much, then they become re-engaged by the vehicle. Or what about if they are under the influence? They've been at the pub for the last couple of hours and they jump in their autonomous vehicle. Wouldn't it or and shouldn't it just drive them home? Uh, if it's a level four vehicle or level five vehicle, it should. Um, so the difference between level four and level five is a level four could generally go point A to point B, so home to office or wherever it needs to go. But there'll be certain situations where it might need to re-engage the driver and it might need to re-engage the driver if the weather turns bad and the, the sensor suite can't cope with the weather, for example. Um, what we're talking about when we say like we can get you, you could be drunk and get in your autonomous car and press home is very much uh, an infallible level five technology, and uh, that's that's the twenty fifty technology. That's the the long way off technology. So I'm gonna have to wait till then to get bombed and then get in get in my self driving car. I think so. I think you might still need an Uber until then. <laughs> okay, perfect. I'm talking to Dr. James Jeffs, a technology analyst at ID Tech X, about autonomous vehicles. You just mentioned weather. What about weather? Right now, I can reasonably drive in a heavy snowstorm uh, down the highway because I. I well, for me, I always have to go to work, even in a blinding snowstorm. Uh, a lot of other people don't. But I, I, if I was in my own car, I can, even if I'm having a hard time seeing, I still have enough experience and a feel of 
how the car is driving, if I'm sliding, how the traction is. I, I can see enough to know how fast I need to go. But in an autonomous car, you have sensors that get clogged by uh, snow. You have cameras that would be blocked by the snow. You have a computer that, and correct me if I'm wrong, thinks about yes or no, on or off, not I could make it, but do the computers in an autonomous uh, car, don't they just say, this is no good and we're we're turning off, or this is good and we're we're staying on? Unlike me, that I could say, yeah, I think think I'm okay right here and I'm just going to go for it. Uh, So let's start with the sensor suite. Um, Yeah, some sensors are uh, more fallible than others when it comes to bad weather, so... Uh, lidars and cameras typically they can if they get too much snow over them they become pretty much useless uh well not 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 useless but their performance is very degraded um radars are a very robust sensor um they don't really mind if it's snowing or raining or foggy they can pretty much see at their full range of a few hundred meters regardless um but radars don't have the best resolution uh, so between radars, lidars, and cameras, you've kind of got a very uh, robust sensor suite that can do far more than a human eye can do. They can instantly measure distances, instantly measure velocity. They've got um, 360-degree vision. Um, but then when it gets to poor weather, some of them are uh, their performance is downgraded. And uh, the software knows how each sensor is performing. It knows when it's uh, being blocked or... Um, if it can't see and it can reduce the abilities of the vehicle so it it might just slow the vehicle down to a crawl Uh, it might decide that it's got too bad and pull over and ask the user to to clear some snow off the sensors Um, but in general the the new sensors that we're seeing um, and we keep a a keen eye on sensor startups and uh, who's got exciting new tech out. The, the sensors that we're seeing are very exciting. I've, I've just spoken to a radar startup. who have a, a radar that can see uh, 800 meters into the distance. Um, I've spoken to thermal imaging um, camera people who uh, their, their uh, thermal imaging camera can see the difference between water and ice on the road. So really superhuman abilities that these sensors can bring when they're working at their peak. But still, the computer, if it's processing all this information, either says go or don't go. I, I, I as a gambling man, can say I'm, I'm just going to go for it. And, and does, it, does a computer have that same type of gamble in there, in, in, in its processing power? Does it say, let's just try it and go for it and see what happens? Uh, in terms of like, if, if you if it can't see very well at a junction, or yeah, if it can't see it very well, if it's if it's snowing like crazy, and I and I just kind of uh, you know pray to God and and, and hope for the best. Uh, I, I don't think computers really do that. No, um, I, I think well, it's it's not. It's very difficult to talk to uh, the software people who actually write the software. They don't want to tell us this information about whether uh, or what their computer will do uh, in these conditions. My personal opinion is, um, my gut feeling is that um, the, as, as the vehicle can see less, it will have a, a reduced uh, ability. So completely clear day, it can do 70 down a, a dual carriageway, that, that's fine, a, a motorway, whatever. And then when it starts to snow or rain, it drops that speed to 60. And then when it gets really bad, it drops it to like 20. Um, and I, I think that's how it operates. And I think if it does get too bad that the vehicle can't see, it's, it's got multiple sensors blocked up and the, the weather is it really that bad, then it will just have to switch off. Uh, and yeah, it, I, I guess it would just have to stop. It's yeah, that would be that would be interesting and a, and quite the hurdle, I guess, to go over. It it brings me to this scenario, of uh, let's say you're on a country road. It's a little icy. You have two autonomous vehicles. One is a bus coming one way. You are coming the other way. And for some whatever reason, it's just you know an act of God. It, it uh, the bus starts to slide a little bit, and the sensors and the computer in the bus and in your car because they're both talking to each other they both know that there's going to be a collision just because of the way the vehicles are moving with each other and how they're sliding and they're going to be a collision. 
do you think the technology, it definitely can't be now, but maybe in the future would be able to autocorrect in a way or try to avoid, you know, I would think that computers are smart enough to calculate then how many people might be injured and or killed in that kind of a collision. It can just do processes so fast that, or does the computer just say, all right, we're sliding and that's the way it is and there's going to be fatalities or injuries or does the computer say i can save the person you know all the people in the bus but the person in the car has to die you know is are those scenarios you know of an eventuality of of the computer technology so this is um this is called the the trolley problem where you've got a, a trolley going down the tracks and there's there's one person tied to the rails in on one of the routes and there's several people tied to the rails on um, another route and uh, you as an operator have to decide if you if you carry on the way you're going you're going to kill seven people if you pull the lever you're going to kill one person but um, you, you've taken some sort of action that's going to guarantee someone's death uh, and it's it's a difficult one and the I don't see it talked about much to be honest um, I think that the approach is just to be extremely cautious and uh sort of to if we go back to the, the trolley problem the approach if, if the trolley is the autonomous vehicle then the autonomous driver would be driving slow enough so that it knows it can stop within whatever it can see um so with the bus and the car i think if the the conditions were that bad the autonomous system would say well i i can see that 50 feet ahead of me is clear and i can stop in in 50 feet therefore i'll be okay at this speed but if that if that um visibility reduces then i'll I'll have to drop my speed because i can't see far enough ahead to guarantee that i can stop before anything becomes a problem interesting so and and then i guess the computer would have to calculate that as well as any other vehicles that it might see with the radar down the road coming towards them and then maybe even reduce it even further, but then you're reducing the speed so much you're crawling along at, you know, 10 kilometers an hour and you're not getting anywhere. But obviously the, the advantage that the autonomous car has here is that with the sensors that I mentioned earlier, it might have a, ve- a much better perception of um, what part of the road is icy and what part of the road is just wet or snowy. Where do I have the grip? Where can I drive to optimize my traction? Uh, plus it's got the advantage of radars, which um, are not bothered by snow so they'll just see straight through the snow um so it it might get to the point where you're driving down the road on a very foggy day uh and the autonomous car is doing uh, 65 miles an hour 75 miles an hour and you're like i can't see in front of me at all but the radars know that there's nothing within a, a 200 meter range that's going to cause you any problems and that it can easily stop if it needs to Almost like uh, an airplane in that same regard, where they're flying um, with, in, you know, outside of visual flight rules, instrument instrument flight rules, IFR, uh, where the plane is basically seeing what you can't see because of the fog. Yeah, and yeah, and it it's, it doesn't doesn't matter what you can see at that point. The radars can can guarantee that there's nothing ahead of you, so there's there's no point slowing down. And, and can those sensors also determine I, I, when? I could, because I've had experience with it and I'm driving down the highway at 60 miles an hour, I know when I see a little chunk of rubber up away that it's probably just the piece of a tire that came from a semi. Well, does the computer sensor, do the radars and LIDAR and the, and the cameras and the computer inside the car, does it know that as well, that it can just... because that, that's the amazing thing about our human brain is that it operates so quickly. We can process so much information as everything is flying at us while we're driving down the road. We're processing so much information. And then I can just recognize within a split second what that is, if it's a threat or not, and whether I should just merge over or, or, or you know move over just a little bit just to get around it. Can, can, can all these sensors be programmed to handle that and, and go as fast as our human brain? Uh, so the sensors will definitely pick it up. So either the camera or the radar. Radars would probably just about have enough uh, resolution to pick that up or a LiDAR. Um, it, yeah, it'll be able to pick it up, classify it as a small object. 
the thing that we're very good at is um, sort of uh, perception and, and knowing what things are very quickly, uh, object recognition and classification, which is something that uh, sensors struggle with. And, and simple things like uh, a plastic bag, no, knowing that it's a plastic bag blown down the road, it's going to be out of the way in no time. Uh, software is getting much better at picking these things up. It's certainly an area that uh, it's going to be a work in progress all the time, trying to uh, get the object classification better, knowing if, if it's um, an object that needs to be avoided or an object that can be um, run over or safely safely passed. I think now some of the Teslas, will they, they'll just stop if they see something unrecognizable. I, I was reading about some other technology. Uh, there's some companies in, I think, the Pittsburgh area that have been working on the autonomous uh, technology and the sensors. And what really has thrown them off and the sensors off are like flocks of birds that all of a sudden just fly out and, and the sensors can't quite recognize what it is. You and I could pretty easily because we understand birds, but the computers aren't quite there yet. Is, is that something that will have to come over the next 20 or 30 years to get to the time where we're not driving vehicles anymore? Uh, it's, it's something that will always be worked on. And um, there are some solutions, for example, with uh, when you start to look at thermal cameras, they can be very good for um, uh, seeing different materials. So uh, thermal cameras will get a different reflection from a rubber than they, uh, a rubber based compound than they would from uh, a metal based compound. So even if it's two black objects sat down the road, a thermal camera will be able to tell you this one's probably made of rubber and this one's pro probably made of metal. So you can avoid one and, and the other one's probably not going to cause you any harm. Uh, likewise, thermal cameras are very good for seeing um, anything living because we have a, a heat signature. We're, we're typically 35 to 40 degrees C. We emit in uh, long infrared. And uh, long infrared cameras at night can easily tell the difference or easily pick out a, uh, a living um, creature from sort of the ambient background. Going back to that, it, it just made me think, uh, I've always been taught, and I, I tell my daughters this, is that if you see an animal on the roadway, squirrel, uh, bear, or I mean, whatever, big or small, the best thing to do is to hit it. You, you don't want to hit it. You don't want to kill that animal. And you feel awful if you do. But it's better if you do, because the likelihood, if you try to swerve around it, is that you will lose control and crash and could be either injured or killed. That is a more likely uh, scenario than uh, being injured or killed if you hit the animal. Uh, so, so how does that transition to an autonomous vehicle? Well, um, so I think an autonomous vehicle will have a better understanding of the vehicle's own capabilities, i.e. how much can I turn the wheel before I cause the car to destabilise, how much can I apply the brakes before destabilising as well. So it will have, it'll have that sort of better knowledge about um, the limits that it can apply to the car. But also it will have 360-degree um, vision. It will know if there's a car behind it and uh, whether it will be able to slam on the brakes. And hopefully it will be able to see the animal a little bit sooner as well. So there's uh, several benefits that come with these automated technologies. And you know, some of these technologies are on vehicles today. I, I don't know if you drive a car with um, automatic emergency braking, but uh, my car has it and I find it actually, it's, uh, it, it doesn't go off, go, it, it doesn't trigger often, but when it does trigger, I think, you know what, I'm, I'm glad you triggered them because if you didn't, it, I might have bumped into the back of something for, uh, I might have had a collision that I didn't need to have. I'm talking to Dr. James Jeffs. He's technology analyst at ID Tech X. We're talking about autonomous vehicles and uh, the future of people driving all together. You, all these sensors, radars, LIDAR, cameras, computers, all on the car add significant cost to a car at least right now. Uh, what about the income divide? There's a lot of people that can't afford a vehicle right now, especially a new one. They have to wait till they are the vehicles are much older, come down in price. So is it going to take longer to get people who are lower income into these type of cars? And could that delay the future of full autonomy on, on, on the roads? Uh, so, so I've mentioned that um, level three is currently coming out in uh, Europe and Japan, and um, 
the cars that are coming with level three technology are incredibly expensive. So uh, two cars that come to mind are the Honda Legend, which is only available in Japan. There's 100 units available and it costs $100,000. Um, the other is a uh, Mercedes S-Class, which I think will be coming with the level three technology in uh, full. And uh, that will also be in the region of 100,000. So certainly as high levels of autonomy come out, level three, level four, it's going to be limited to uh, really the luxury end of the market. Um, part of that is the, the cost of the sensors. So the, the Hunter Legend uses five LIDARs, five radars and two cameras. And those LIDARs are really expensive. Uh, I would guess that the sensor suite on that car is going to be in the tens of thousands of dollars. Um, those prices are set to come down. Uh, LiDAR is the dominant one at the minute. Uh, typical LiDAR costs between, say, $1,000 and $10,000, depending on uh, how good it is, whereas radar is in the $100 to $200 range for a good one, and cameras are in the sort of less than $100 range. So uh, it's affordable at the minute to have a level two vehicle, which um, you know, I, I did a, a study recently on um, how many cars have radar at the minute and found that about 60% of vehicles um, ship with adaptive cruise control, which probably uses radar to uh, estimate the distance of the car in front and estimate the velocity. Um, so we're already seeing some of these sensors penetrate sort of the everyday car market. Um, it will probably take 15 to 20 years for if, if an autonomous vehicle technology came out today, probably take 15 to 20 years for it to be available to everybody. Um, that's, that's in the private car market, but the movement is really towards mobility as a service, not, and not buying the car, but just, just paying for the service. So uh, essentially replacing Uber with um, robo-taxis. And uh, obviously that gives a cost saving because the driver is a significant part of the cost of paying for an Uber. So in, in the future, the lower income folks who are riding the bus would not have to worry about buying a $5,000 car because they're not going to need it because they can ride in a car where somebody else is paying the $100,000 to buy it or uh, the $100,000 bus to operate it where you're paying far less money because you don't need to own a car at that point and you can just use the ride share or uh, public transportation that's all autonomous at that point, right? Yeah, in the, in the long term, we think um, it will be cheaper to uh, use a robo-taxi than it would to buy your own vehicle um, in terms of day-to-day -day running costs. You know, when you when you boil everything down to how many cents is this costing me per mile, um, we think it would be cheaper to uh, just use robo-taxis instead of your own, own your own vehicle. And uh, the savings are coming from things like, uh, we think that the robo-taxis will be used a lot longer. They'll have a longer lifespan because they'll get used a lot more every year. So a typical American drives 15,000 miles per year. Uh, we think robo-taxis will be driving in the range of 60,000 miles per year, um, which helps bring the cost down because you've got, uh, you're, you're sharing the insurance over more miles. You're sharing any taxes over more miles. You're sharing main, well, you have to do maintenance as regularly, but fleet managed maintenance tends to be a bit cheaper than uh, privately managed maintenance. So it brings all those savings without having to pay for the cost of a driver, which drives up the price of uh, services like Uber. And in the short time we have left, uh, let's talk about cybersecurity. You mentioned it earlier that we're seeing so many people get hacked and ransomware attacks uh, on their personal computer. Couldn't all of that happen also in your personal vehicle and then you're driving down the road, uh, you get close to a destination or the car is hacked, takes you off a different road, parks you in some place that you are then either robbed or, or held at ransom until you make a payment? Uh, there's certainly some, some scary scenarios. So it, it could range from uh, simple theft of your car. If your car is completely connected, there might be um, electronic routes into your car to unlock it and to start it without the need of the uh, physical key or um, anything like that. Uh, it could be like you say, they pull the car over, lock it and um, ask for a ransom to be unlocked and freed. Um, it could even be as scary as uh, a message appears on your dashboard telling you that your brakes have been turned off and you need to pay a ransom for them to be turned back on. Um, there are some 
really scary scenarios when it comes to cybersecurity. And it's, it's why cybersecurity plays such a big part in autonomous. And there's a lot of um, consideration now about making every single part of the uh, system secure uh, from a cybersecurity perspective. And, and that, that goes as far as making sure that there's no entry points into the vehicle through a radar or a camera or like any any connected part of the vehicle, any electronic part of the vehicle that has a computer chip in it. People are thinking about how can we protect this this part, make sure it's not vulnerable, make sure it doesn't cause the car to be vulnerable. It seems like that's almost an impossibility with so many people and the car has to be totally connected to other vehicles and the internet overall and with traffic lights if we're going to get to that full autonomy. And it's already tough enough with people clicking on the wrong email link. It happened to my in-laws where they talked to somebody about, you know, they, they, they connected to somebody who said they were from Microsoft support and uh, they lost a couple hundred dollars because of it. Yeah, it's uh, unfortunately, I, I don't know what the answer to it is because uh, cybersecurity uh, if we if we try to talk to anyone from cybersecurity, they don't like to tell us a lot about the technologies that they're working on. But um, all I do know from talking uh, to people in the industry and from um, trying to stay connected with what's going on is is that it's uh, it is a big concern, and there's lots of people working on it and uh, trying to ensure safety. And I'm, I'm sure there'll be lots of uh, tests in the future to ensure that you are protected um, from a cybersecurity point of view when driving these vehicles. Yeah. Are, are you looking forward to the day where you don't have to drive a car anymore? I'm looking forward to it being an option. Um, so I, I mentioned earlier, my car has uh, adaptive cruise control and lane keep assist, and it really makes journeys up and down the motorway a lot more relaxing. Um, journeys in traffic a lot more relaxing, knowing that the car will just come to a stop and follow the traffic and um I still pay attention to the road, but I need to be far less connected from the task of driving. I don't need to be changing gears or, or monitoring my speed. I just need to watch the car in front and make sure we don't get too close. Um, so personally, I can see myself using um, autonomous technologies, especially for trips to see the grandparents, uh, those kinds of journeys, but hopefully still enjoying driving. And uh, uh, maybe I just won't let anyone put autonomous technology on my motorbike. I'll keep that one. Uh, safe yeah you, motorcycles i don't know how autonomous motorcycles would work out that seems like that would be a it's, a it's starting to come i've seen a couple of motorcycles with adaptive cruise control and and uh, lane departure warnings and things like that and cross traffic alerts hmm. i think adas will certainly come to motorbikes as well so no more uh you know the the crazies doing wheelies and driving at a <laughs> doing do, do, do donuts in the middle of an intersection then take it off autonomous stopping could be interesting on a motorbike as well i i don't think i'd want to experience that <laughs> <laughs> no then you'd be a uh, superman at that point uh, yes exactly <laughs> dr james jeffs technology analyst at id tech x thank you so much for your uh, time your information your experience and all of this and it'll be interesting to see how well your predictions uh, come come to fruition yeah so it was it was a nice chat and yeah we can speak in 30 years about my predictions and see what's happened in that time all right you bet no we'll talk again soon all right thank you very much jason yeah thanks again all right take care again soon okay bye that's why i call it the world famous driving you crazy podcast because we are all over the world going live to london we actually had quite a bit of downloads from spain recently uh, so thank you to uh, all the European listeners <laughs> for the show. I still think it's going to take a bit longer for everyone to be driving around, though, in autonomous vehicles. And, and I think the major road humps here will be determining who's liable in a, in a crash or, you know, for civil liabilities and, and other liabilities, comfort level and feeling comfortable in a, in a vehicle with no driver, uh, the infrastructure, making sure the infrastructure is uh, good enough to handle cars that are driving by themselves, especially in rural areas. Look, human, humans have limitations when it comes to things, right? Uh, all right, this is right off the top of my head. Think about bathrooms. I mean, you never saw a bathroom on the Starship Enterprise, did you? Or the Millennium Falcon. I, they had to have them right there because didn't they have to, didn't they eat? Didn't they, you know, have, have to go to the bathroom? Um, did they, did they <laughs> figure that out somehow or, or did they hide it? 
on the ship, and you just never saw it because that's not fun part of the episode. Um, any, <laughs> anyway, not that you need an, a restroom in an autonomous car, but but look through our technology. We thought we were going to be, 50 years ago, we thought we were going to be in flying cars already. We thought we were going to be in the space-age Jetson-aged. Um, I'm skeptical, skeptical about some of these predictions because humans are humans, and it's harder to get to a distant future place, uh, that utopian place, than I think people understand because we are humans. We're people. We 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 st- we have gravity to deal with. We we have biological functions to deal with, um, and, and I, I don't think I'm making the point very well. But anyway, um, and I really like driving myself, and I don't want to have a car drive for me. I tend to drive, well, just a little bit over the speed limit sometimes, especially on road trips. And and unless there are autonomous cars on the interstates that that I would be able to program to go at a higher speed, I I don't think they would let me go at a higher speed. I think they just drive themselves. You just program where you want to go, and it takes you there. And... If you, if let's say I'm going, uh, I'm driving, I don't know, eight hours and I can go, I don't know, 10 miles an hour faster than the speed limit. Presumably I'm going to be getting there uh, about an hour or a little bit uh, more uh, uh, faster by going even just a little bit faster than the speed limit, right? Because speeding really only works for really long distance trips where you have to go a long distance and then you can save an hour or a half an hour. Over short trips, it's really not that time useful uh, or helpful, um, unless you catch all the traffic lights just right. But it is more helpful if you're going long distances. So I, I just want to be able to control my own car. That's what I have a problem with. I have a problem with that. And I think some people, but maybe you just have to give up. You just have to give up your... Uh, Give up like a racehorse. Eventually, you just got to give it up and then just go out to pasture, sit in the autonomous car, and let it drive for you. Maybe that's maybe that's the lesson here. Anyway, uh, if you have thoughts about this, you can always send them my way. All the description links uh, or uh, contact links are in the description of this fine program. And if you would uh, please give me a call, 303-832-0217, I sure would appreciate it. Anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. And until next time, I'm Jason Looper, the traffic guy. Be safe. And as always, happy motoring.